Welcome to the Not Last Podcast, Season 1, Episode 4. I'm your host, Andrew Neil Nunez. Today's topic is titled, The Lantern Rouge. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to it. Welcome, everyone. I am very excited that you're here. I'd like to start off by sharing that we have hit our first landmark for the podcast. I uh, just got the notification that we've hit 100 downloads for the Not Last podcast. So thank you to everyone who keeps tuning in, subscribing, and listening. So the topic for today is titled The Lantern Rouge. For those of you who follow cycling, you've undoubtedly heard about the Tour de France, or you follow it religiously like I do. For those of you who don't follow cycling, hopefully you've at least heard about the biggest monument in our sport, the Tour de France. It is a race unlike any other race in the world. It is an entire month long. There are 21 stages, and this year is going to be the 107th edition of the Tour de France. It's got a very long history, and there are so many different aspects of the Tour that are just incredible to follow and to watch and see how they unfold over the course of an entire month. This year's Tour is going to take place on August 29th, starting in Nice, France, and then it will finish September 20th on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. So in this year's Tour, there are 28 prizes up for grabs. It's often referred to as a race within a race. Undoubtedly, we have the leader of the race, and that person receives the yellow jersey. We have the green jersey for the best sprinter in the race, the polka dot jersey for the best climber, the white jersey for the best young rider, the best team classification, the most aggressive rider on each stage wins a prize, then we have the individual stage winner, and surprisingly, the last place rider also receives a prize and a significant amount of recognition, affectionately known as the Lantern Rouge. So to put this a little more into perspective, there are 152 riders who enter this race. There will only be one race winner. With 28 other prizes up for grabs, that leaves 124 of the 152 riders riding in support for their team leader or to get some small prize during the race. And that prize could be TV time for their sponsors. That prize could be um, a King of the Mountain competition. That prize could be any number of things. For today's episode, I've included excerpts from a book entitled The Lantern Rouge by Max Leonard. It's a very fascinating book to read. He goes into the history of The Lantern Rouge. I highly encourage you, if you're, if you're at all interested in this, to purchase the book and support this author and uh, read a little bit more on the deep, deep history of cycling and cycling culture. But we can't talk about The Lantern Rouge without talking about the riders you haven't heard of, the domestiques. We call them the worker bees. The role of the domestique, despite the emasculating nickname, has become a complex and honorable one. His job is Sisyphean, to do everything in his power to achieve the team's goals and propel one of its numbers into the limelight, day after day after day. If that's a GC contender, every man will work to put him in the best position possible for the overall win. If a sprinter, they'll maneuver him into a prime spot from which to launch himself at the finish line and the flat stages. 
If a climber, they'll climb before him to the point where he chooses to take flight solo for the stage win. Everything in their power to prevent their leader expending energy unnecessarily, which means the laws of physics inevitably dictate expending more themselves. They will shield him from the wind, bring him water from the team car, set an unforgiving pace to tear the air from his opponent's lungs, stop with him when he needs to pee and ride him back to the bunch and a hundred smaller tasks. Domestiques may well be less talented and less capable of stamping their personal mark on the greatest races. But without them, cycling's greatest names would not have the Palmars they do. And if the domestique finishes last after he's done his job, so be it. Some of the greatest riders have garnered the title of super domestique. These are the select few who have considerable talent, but will put that aside and sacrifice life and limb for their captain. I like to win, but I'm not motivated to win. I never go into a race saying, I want to win this, said Sean Yates. The thing that motivates me is riding for someone, either leading out a sprinter or helping a climber or defending a jersey. And when I'm in that situation, in any of those situations, then I perform much better because I'm motivated. Yates was the British super domestique who bossed around the peloton in the 1980s and 90s. And if a rider does all that well, who's to judge that's less of a success than what the guy he has worked for achieves? The Lantern Rouge is the last rider in the tour. Sometimes it's a game of cat and mouse to try to be the last one. Sometimes it's a rider who's given everything for their team captain and has to claw their way to the finish line only to do it over again the next day and the next day for a month. Or this is the rider whose stars didn't align and everything is going wrong. A crash, a mechanical, poor nutrition, illness, etc. Everything that they try and do, whether in their control or not, is not going to get them to the finish line. He rides, rides, rides some more. He rides and rides to the finish line where he learns he is last in the general classification. And tomorrow, he will get back on his bike. Cycling is such a beautiful sport for multiple reasons, some of which is the honor and nobility that riders treat this discipline with. So many professional riders go their entire career without a single victory to their name. However, a victory can come in various forms. Cyclist Jimmy Casper found himself twice in the position of Lantern Rouge. He said, one does not abandon the tour, one withdraws from it, an important nuance. You withdraw because you have to, you're ill or whatever, but you do not abandon. It's not just semantics, it shows the crucial difference in mindset between someone who gives up and someone who battles to the end. Jimmy battled to the end at Alpe d'Huez in 2008 after riding 160 kilometers on his own, only to miss the time cut by two minutes. He rode eight days in 2002 in a neck brace thanks to a crash, and he battled between Berg de Wazan and Gap in 2003. Each time he was forced to withdraw. Always in the Alps, they were his nemesis. 
Jimmy never abandoned while there was the slightest scrap of hope of finishing. He was always unable to continue, or too far outside the time limit, with too large and lumpy a portion of the day's stage to go to make it back. I'm stubborn, but I'm not stupid, he says. As a competitive cyclist, you give everything to this sport. You give time, money, skin, and bone. This sport takes and takes and takes and takes and continues to take just a little bit more. And it gives you nothing, little to nothing in return. But when you do see that success, it makes all that hard work worth it, even if it's for that last place, or just to say you accomplish something extremely difficult. That is one thing that I love more than anything else about this sport, is just how hard it is. And when you do accomplish something, it is seemingly insignificant to the untrained eye, but to you, it is everything in the world. And to the other riders who have suffered alongside you or have been in that similar situation, they appreciate the gravity and the weight of the thing that you just did. In 2005, Iker Flores was doing everything he could to gain time, including drafting his team car, for which he was sanctioned both financially and with a time penalty of 20 more seconds. His deficit to second to last place could not be recovered. On one mountain stage, Iker was feeling so bad that in the first 10 kilometers he was dropped from the peloton, with two big coals and a long, long way to go. 240 kilometers, Iker says. Odyssey. Even with two other riders by his side, it was going to be a tough day. To keep himself going, Iker pretended he was in a winning break and was shooting not simply for survival, but for glory. Iger starts the tale. He was thinking how to win the stage because he needed to motivate himself. In this situation, if you go down, you are lost. He was thinking all the time that he was in this breakaway how to beat those two guys for motivation. He took up the pacemaking duties. I had the last coal to finish, so I thought I'd try to leave those two behind. They moved sideways and looked at me as if to say, what is this guy doing now? And then they dropped me. And after that, on top of all of that, at the coal when I came in last, all the people were in the road. They were all leaving, and I still had to finish. They had to make way for me. That was probably the most humiliating day in my whole cycling career. I remember crying. I remember crying because I felt tired, the last of the peloton. I was going to be dropped from the tour. Out of stubbornness and self-respect, he kept going. Iker says, a Spanish journalist came to me and told me I was last. I said, no, make no mistake. 200 riders came here. I am 120th. In another race, I might be last, but not here. These are the stories, the types of riders that really get me excited and motivated and inspire me more than anything else. I spoke in my first episode of how I really find it hard to identify or resonate from those who are at the top of their sport. They certainly didn't get there alone. The entire team around them had to sacrifice their chances, sometimes even the domestic giving up their own bike during a race for their captain. It's those stories that I really find motivating. 
Some of my favorite race memories is when I play the role of gatekeeper or pace setter in the group. My squad and I show up and we we know we're going to have a good day because we know that our team is so deep and so skilled. And I've got a teammate or two up the road during the race and it's my job to make sure that they stay up the road. They're going to win this race. Not only are they extremely talented, but... I'm extremely good at what I do. Another rider wants to attack? Sure, but not on my watch. Uh, nobody gets away without me sitting on their wheel. Or we'll have these crazy tactics where I'll attack from the gun in an absurd move to set up the breakaway. I get a good gap, we'll establish a lead, my teammates will bridge across, or even better, my job is to make sure that the break fails. And that's super fun to do as well. I get in the break, I establish it, I get it moving, and it starts to crumble. And then my teammates are poised, ready to pounce for the counterattack that is just so violent and so vicious that nobody can follow. Man, I love that more than anything else in the world. It is so much fun to be in that role of the worker bee, the helper. I don't really care about winning. I don't really care about being the physical one on the top of the podium. Sure, it's fun. I love to do it. I have been there a few times and it's amazing. But having a teammate that you sacrifice everything for to deliver them the win or to deliver them to that spot that they want to be, that is just as rewarding for me as it is to stand on the top step. I raced the world's best bike racers for 200 kilometers over the Galibier in a storm. There's a weight to the statement that cannot be denied. And I'm not sure there's an insight to be gained. What's remarkable is the persistence. To be a domestique would be such an incredible job. So in the meantime, I guess I'll keep training and look forward to the long, <laughs> the very long range plans of next season. 2020 seemingly won't end soon enough. We're all in this together, I know, and it's getting harder and harder every day. But we keep looking forward, we keep focused, we stay on target, and the fruits of our labor will come to fruition. We will get there. We will have the results and the experience that we want. But in the meantime, you have to put in the work. So that's what I have for you this week. I hope you enjoyed the little tale and the storytelling of the Lantern Rouge. I hope you learned a little bit more about this amazing sport and about the tour. I do hope that you at least watch a stage if you don't get sucked into it like I do and follow every little nuance and uh, the drama. It's the best reality TV show, uh, typically in the month of July, but they've had to push it back due to COVID. Uh, it is just fantastic. It is incredible to watch, and I really hope that you tune in and watch. And if you have a favorite stage or a favorite part of the tour that you like, uh, please share it with me. Find me on at notlast underscore podcast on Instagram, and uh, I'd be very curious to see what your favorite part of the tour is or what you're curious about. Uh, if you've never watched the tour, if it doesn't make any sense, I'd be happy to help explain it to you or put some resources in front of you. And um, I really hope that you tune in next week for what it's like to be unquestionably 
the worst rider there. Additional contributors on today's episode come from athletics archivist and historian Lauren Goss. Thanks for tuning in to the Not Last podcast. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop weekly. Follow us on Instagram at notlast underscore podcast. This podcast is produced solely by me. If you like what you hear, be sure to tell your friends. Music is generously permitted by the illustrious Flamingosis. My amazing artwork was created by the extremely talented Paige Anochibar. Give them a follow and be sure to support local artists. You can find and subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher podcasts. Coming up next, I'm going to talk about what happens when you do find yourself in last place. Unquestionably, undeniably dead last. I'm excited you're here, and I hope you'll come back soon.